Section 16 of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dennis Sayers. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book 5. Chapters 4 through 6. Chapter 4 A Little Chapter in Which is Contained a Little Incident Among other visitants, who paid their compliments to the young gentleman in his confinement, Mrs. Honor was one. The reader, perhaps when he reflects on some expressions which have formerly dropped from her, may conceive that she herself had a very particular affection for Mr. Jones, but in reality it was no such thing. Tom Jones was a handsome young fellow, and for that species of men Mrs. Honor had some regard. But this was perfectly indiscriminate, for having been crossed in the love which she bore a certain nobleman's footman, who had basely deserted her after a promise of marriage, she had so securely kept together the broken remains of her heart that no man had ever since been able to possess himself of any single fragment. She viewed all handsome men with that equal regard and benevolence which a sober and virtuous mind bears to all the good. She might, indeed, be called a lover of men, as Socrates was a lover of mankind, preferring one to another for corporeal, as he for mental qualifications, but never carrying this preference so far as to cause any perturbation in the philosophical serenity of her temper. The day after Mr. Jones had that conflict with himself, which we have seen in the preceding chapter, Mrs. Honor came into his room, and, finding him alone, began in the following manner. "'La, sir, where do you think I have been? I warrants you, you would not guess in fifty years, but, if you did guess, to be sure, I must not tell you neither.' "'Nay, if it be something which you must not tell me,' said Jones, I shall have the curiosity to inquire, and I know you will not be so barbarous to refuse me. I don't know, cries she, why I should refuse you neither, for that matter, for to be sure you won't mention it any more. And for that matter, if you knew where I have been, unless you knew what I have been about, it would not signify much. Nay, I don't see why it should be kept a secret for my part, for, to be sure, she is the best lady in the world. Upon this, Jones began to beg earnestly to be let into this secret, and faithfully promised not to divulge it. She then proceeded thus. Why, you must know, sir, my young lady sent me to inquire after Molly Seagram, and to see whether the wench wanted anything. To be sure, I did not care to go, methinks, 
My servants must do what they are ordered. How could you undervalue yourself so, Mr. Jones? So my lady bid me go and carry her some linens and other things. She is too good. If such forward sluts were sent to Bridewell, it would be better for them. I told my lady, says I, Madam, your layship is encouraging idleness. And was my Sophia so good? says Jones. My Sophia, I assure you, Mary come up, answered Honour, and yet if you knew all, indeed, if I was as Mr. Jones, I should look a little higher than such trumpery as Molly Seagram. What do you mean by these words, replied Jones, if I knew all? I mean what I mean, says Honour. Don't you remember putting your hands in my lady's muff once? I vow I could almost find in my heart to tell, if I was certain my lady would never come to the hearing on't. Jones then made several solemn protestations, and Honour proceeded. Then, to be sure, my lady gave me that muff, and afterwards, upon hearing what you had done, then you told her what I had done, interrupted Jones. If I did, sir, answered she, you need not be angry with me. Many's the man who would have given his head to have had my lady told, if they had known, for, to be sure, the biggest lord in the land might be proud. But I protest, I have a great mind not to tell you. Jones fell to entreaties, and soon prevailed on her to go on thus. You must know, then, sir, that my lady had given this muff to me, but about a day or two after I had told her the story, she quarrels with her new muff, and to be sure, it is the prettiest that ever was seen. Honour, says she, this is an odious muff. It is too big for me. I can't wear it. Till I can get another, you must let me have my old one again, and you may have this in the room on it. For she's a good lady, and scorns to give a thing, and take a thing. I promise you that. So, to be sure, I fetched it her back again, and I believe she hath worn it upon her arm almost ever since, and I warrants hath given it many a kiss when nobody hath seen her. Here the conversation was interrupted by Mr. Western himself, who came to summon Jones to the harpsichord, whither the poor young fellow went all pale and trembling. This Western observed, but on seeing Mrs. Honour, imputed it to a wrong cause, and having given Jones a hearty curse between jest and earnest, he bid him beat abroad, and not poach up the game in his warren. Sophia looked this evening with 
more than usual beauty, and we may believe it was no small addition to her charms, in the eye of Mr. Jones, that she now happened to have on her right arm this very muff. She was playing one of her father's favorite tunes, and he was leaning on her chair, when the muff fell over her fingers, and put her out. This so disconcerted the squire that he snatched the muff from her, and with a hearty curse threw it into the fire. Sophia instantly started up, and with the utmost eagerness recovered it from the flames. Though this incident will probably appear of little consequence to many of our readers, yet, trifling as it was, it had so violent an effect on poor Jones, that we thought it our duty to relate it. In reality, there are many little circumstances too often omitted by injudicious historians, from which events of the utmost importance arise. The world may indeed be considered as a vast machine, in which the great wheels are originally set in motion by those which are very minute, and almost imperceptible to any but the strongest eyes. Thus not all the charms of the incomparable Sophia, not all the dazzling brightness and languishing softness of her eyes, the harmony of her voice and of her person, not all her wit, good humor, greatness of mind, or sweetness of disposition, had been able so absolutely to conquer and enslave the heart of poor Jones as this little incident of the muff. Thus the poet sweetly sings of Troy, Captice dolus, lacrimiste coati quos neque tidides, nec lariseus Achilles. Non ani domuere desem, non mille carinae. What Diomede or Thetis's greater son, a thousand ships nor ten years' siege had done, false tears and fawning words the city won. The citadel of Jones was now taken by surprise. All those considerations of honor and prudence which Our Lady had lately with so much military wisdom placed as guards over the avenues of his heart, ran away from their posts, and the God of love marched in, in triumph. CHAPTER V A VERY LONG CHAPTER CONTAINING A VERY GREAT INCIDENT but though this victorious deity easily expelled his avowed enemies from the heart of Jones, he found it more difficult to supplant the garrison which he himself had placed there. To lay aside all allegory, the concern for what must become of poor Molly greatly disturbed and perplexed the mind of the worthy youth. The superior merit of Sophia totally eclipsed, or rather, extinguished all the beauties of the poor girl, 
but compassion instead of contempt succeeded to love he was convinced that the girl had placed all her affections and all her prospect of future happiness in him only for this he had he knew given sufficient occasion by the utmost profusion of tenderness towards her a tenderness which he had taken every means to persuade her he would always maintain she on her side had assured him of her firm belief in his promise and had with the most solemn vows declared that on his fulfilling or breaking these promises it depended whether she would be the happiest or most miserable of womankind and to be the author of this highest degree of misery to a human being was a thought on which he could not bear to ruminate a single moment he considered this poor girl as having sacrificed to him everything in her little power as having been at her own expense the object of his pleasure as sighing and languishing for him even at that very instant shall then says he my recovery for which she hath so ardently wished shall my presence which she hath so eagerly expected instead of giving her that joy with which she hath flattered herself cast her at once down into misery and despair can i be such a villain here when the genius of poor molly seemed triumphant the love of sophia towards him which now appeared no longer dubious rushed upon his mind and bore away every obstacle before it at length it occurred to him that he might possibly be able to make molly amends another way namely by giving her a sum of money this nevertheless he almost despaired of her accepting when he recollected the most frequent and vehement assurances he had received from her that the world put in balance with him would make her no amends for his loss however her extreme poverty and chiefly her egregious vanity somewhat of which hath been already hinted to the reader gave him some little hope that notwithstanding all her avowed tenderness she might in time be brought to content herself with a fortune superior to her expectation and which might indulge her vanity by setting her above all her equals he resolved therefore to take the first opportunity of making a proposal of this kind one day accordingly when his arm was so well recovered that he could walk easily with it slung in a sash he stole forth at a season when the squire was engaged in his field exercises and visited his fair one her mother and sisters whom he found taking their tea informed him first that molly was not at home but afterwards the eldest sister acquainted him with a malicious smile that she was above stairs abed 
Tom had no objection to this situation of his mistress, and immediately ascended the ladder which led towards her bedchamber. But when he came to the top, he, to his great surprise, found the door fast, nor could he for some time obtain any answer from within, for Molly, as she herself afterwards informed him, was fast asleep. The extremes of grief and joy have been remarked to produce very similar effects, and when either of these rushes on us by surprise, it is apt to create such a total perturbation and confusion, that we are often deprived of the use of all our faculties. It cannot therefore be wondered at, that at the unexpected sight of Mr. Jones, should so strongly operate on the mind of Molly, and should overwhelm her with such confusion, that for some minutes she was unable to express the great raptures with which the reader will suppose she was affected on this occasion. As for Jones, he was so entirely possessed, and, as it were, enchanted by the presence of his beloved object, that he for a while forgot Sophia, and consequently the principal purpose of his visit. This, however, soon recurred to his memory, and after the first transports of their meeting were over, he found means, by degrees, to introduce a discourse on the fatal consequences which must attend their amour, if Mr. Allworthy, who had strictly forbidden him ever seeing her more, should discover that he still carried on this commerce. Such a discovery, which his enemies gave him reason to think would be unavoidable, must, he said, end in his ruin, and consequently in hers, since therefore their hard fates had determined that they must separate, he advised her to bear it with resolution, and swore he would never omit any opportunity, through the course of his life, of showing her the sincerity of his affection, by providing for her in a manner beyond her utmost expectation, or even beyond her wishes, if ever that should be in his power, concluding at last that she might soon find some man who would marry her, and who would make her much happier than she could be by leading a disreputable life with him. Molly remained a few moments in silence, and then, bursting into a flood of tears, she began to upbraid him, in the following words, And this is your love for me, to forsake me in this manner? Now you have ruined me. How often, when I have told you that all men are false and perjury alike, and grow tired of us as soon as ever they have had their wicked wills of us, how often have you sworn you would never forsake me? And can you be such a perjury man after all? What signifies all the riches in the world to me without you? Now you have gained my heart. So you have, you have, 
Why do you mention another man to me? I can never love any other man as long as I live. All other men are nothing to me. If the greatest squire in all the country would come a-suiting to me to-morrow, I would not give my company to him. No, I shall always hate and despise the whole sex for your sake. She was proceeding thus, when an accident put a stop to her tongue, before it had run out half its career. The room, or rather garret, in which Molly lay, being up one pair of stairs, that is to say, at the top of the house, was of a sloping figure, resembling the great delta of the Greeks. The English reader may perhaps form a better idea of it by being told that it was impossible to stand upright anywhere but in the middle. Now, as this room wanted the conveniency of a closet, Molly had, to supply that defect, nailed up an old rug against the rafters of the house, which enclosed a little hole where her best apparel, such as the remains of that sack which we have formerly mentioned, some caps and other things with which she had lately provided herself, were hung up and secured from the dust. This enclosed place exactly fronted the foot of the bed, to which indeed the rug hung so near, that it served in a manner to supply the want of curtains. Now, whether Molly, in the agonies of her rage, pushed this rug with her feet, or Jones might touch it, or whether the pin or nail gave way of its own accord, I am not certain, but as Molly pronounced these last words, which are recorded above, the wicked rug got loose from its fastening, and discovered everything hid behind it, where, among other female utensils, appeared, with shame I write it, and with sorrow will it be read, the philosopher square, in a posture, for the place would not admit his standing upright, as ridiculous as can possibly be conceived. The posture, indeed, in which he stood, was not greatly unlike that of a soldier who is tied neck and heels, or rather resembling the attitude in which we often see fellows in the public streets of London, who are not suffering, but deserving punishment by so standing. He had a nightcap belonging to Molly on his head, and his two large eyes, the moment the rug fell, stared directly at Jones, so that when the idea of philosophy was added to the figure now discovered, it would have been very difficult for any spectator to have refrained from immoderate laughter. I question not but the surprise of the reader will be here equal to that of Jones, as the suspicions which must arise from the appearance of this wise and grave man in such a place may seem so inconsistent with that character 
which he hath, doubtless, maintained hitherto, in the opinion of every one. But to confess the truth, this inconsistency is rather imaginary than real. Philosophers are composed of flesh and blood as well as other human creatures, and however sublimated and refined the theory of these may be, a little practical frailty is as incident to them as to other mortals. It is indeed in theory only, and not in practice, as we have before hinted, that consists the difference. For though such great beings think much better and more wisely, they always act exactly like other men. They know very well how to subdue all appetites and passions, and to despise both pain and pleasure, and this knowledge affords much delightful contemplation, and is easily acquired. But the practice would be vexatious and troublesome, and therefore the same wisdom which teaches them to know this, teaches them to avoid carrying it into execution. Mr. Square happened to be at church on that Sunday, when, as the reader may be pleased to remember, the appearance of Molly in her sack had caused all that disturbance. Here he first observed her, and was so pleased with her beauty, that he prevailed with the young gentlemen to change their intended ride that evening, that he might pass by the habitation of Molly, and by that means might obtain a second chance of seeing her. This reason, however, as he did not at that time mention to any, so neither did he think proper to communicate it then to the reader. Among other particulars which constituted the unfitness of things in Mr. Square's opinion, danger and difficulty were two. The difficulty, therefore, which he apprehended there, might be in corrupting this young wench, and the danger which would accrue to his character on the discovery, were such strong dissuatives that it is probable he at first intended to have contented himself with the pleasing ideas which the sight of beauty furnishes us with. These, the gravest men, after a full meal of serious meditation, often allow themselves by way of dessert, for which purpose certain books and pictures find their way into the most private recesses of their study, and a certain liquorish part of natural philosophy is often the principal subject of their conversation. But when the philosopher heard, a day or two afterwards, that the fortress of virtue had already been subdued, he began to give a larger scope to his desires. His appetite was not of that squeamish kind 
which cannot feed on a dainty, because another hath tasted it. In short, he liked the girl better for the want of that chastity, which, if she had possessed it, must have been a bar to his pleasures. He pursued, and obtained her. The reader will be mistaken if he thinks Molly gave Square the preference to her younger lover. On the contrary, had she been confined to the choice of one only, Tom Jones would have undoubtedly been, of the two, the victorious person. Nor was it solely the consideration that two, or better than one, though this had its proper weight, to which Mr. Square owed his success. The absence of Jones, during his confinement, was an unlucky circumstance, and in that interval some well-chosen presence from the philosopher so softened and unguarded the girl's heart that a favorable opportunity became irresistible, and Square triumphed over the poor remains of virtue which subsisted in the bosom of Molly. It was now about a fortnight since this conquest, when Jones paid the above-mentioned visit to his mistress, at a time when she and Square were in bed together. This was the true reason why the mother denied her, as we have seen, for as the old woman shared in the profits arising from the iniquity of her daughter, she encouraged and protected her in it to the utmost of her power. But such was the envy and hatred which the elder sister bore towards Molly that, notwithstanding she had some part of the booty, she would willingly have parted with this to ruin her sister and spoil her trade. Hence, she had acquainted Jones with her being above stairs in bed, in hopes that he might have caught her in Square's arms. This, however, Molly found means to prevent, as the door was fastened, which gave her an opportunity of conveying her lover behind that rug or blanket where he now was unhappily discovered. Square no sooner made his appearance than Molly flung herself back in her bed, cried out that she was undone, and abandoned herself to despair. This poor girl, who was yet but a novice in her business, had not arrived to that perfection of assurance which helps off a town lady in any extremity, and either prompts her with an excuse, or, or else inspires her to brazen out the matter with her husband, who from love of quiet, or out of fear of his reputation, and sometimes perhaps from fear of the gallant who, like Mr. Constant in the play, wears a sword, is glad to shut his eyes and 
content to put his horns in his pocket. Molly, on the contrary, was silenced by this evidence, and very fairly gave up a cause which she had hitherto maintained with so many tears and with such solemn and vehement protestations of the purest love and constancy. As to the gentleman behind the arras, he was not in much less consternation. He stood for a while motionless, and seemed equally at a loss what to say, or whither to direct his eyes. Jones, though perhaps the most astonished of the three, first found his tongue, and being immediately recovered from those uneasy sensations which Molly by her upbraidings had occasioned, he burst into a loud laughter, and then, saluting Mr. Square, advanced to take him by the hand, and to relieve him from his place of confinement. Square, being now arrived in the middle of the room, in which part only he could stand upright, looked at Mr. Jones with a very grave countenance, and said to him, Well, uh, sir, I see you enjoy this mighty discovery, and I dare swear take great delight in the thoughts of exposing me. But if you will consider the matter fairly, you will find you are yourself only to blame. I am not guilty of corrupting innocence. I have done nothing for which that part of the world which judges of matters by the rule of right will condemn me. Fitness is governed by the nature of things, and not by customs, forms, or municipal laws. Nothing is indeed unfit which is not unnatural. Well reasoned, old boy, answered Jones, but why dost thou think that I should desire to expose thee? I promise thee, I was never better pleased with thee in my life, and unless thou hast a mind to discover it thyself, this affair may remain a profound secret for me. Nay, Mr. Jones, replied Square, I would not be thought to undervalue reputation. Good fame is a species of the calon, and it is by no means fitting to neglect it. Besides, to murder one's own reputation is a kind of suicide, a detestable and odious vice. If you think proper, therefore, to conceal any infirmity of mine, for such I may have, since no man is perfectly perfect, I promise you I will not betray myself. Things may be fitting to be done, which are not fitting to be boasted of, for by the perverse judgment of the world that often becomes the object of censure, which is, in truth, not only innocent, but laudable. Right, cries Jones, what can be more innocent than the indulgence of a 
natural appetite, or what can be more laudable than the propagation of our species? To be serious with you, answered Square, I profess they always appeared so to me. And yet, said Jones, you was of a different opinion when my affair with this girl was first discovered. Why, I must confess, says Square, as the matter was represented to me by that uh, parson Thwackham, I might condemn the corruption of innocence. It was that, sir, it was that, and, and that, for you must know, Mr. Jones, in the consideration of fitness, very minute circumstances, sir, very minute circumstances, cause great alteration. Well, cries Jones, be that as it will. It shall be your own fault, as I have promised you, if you ever hear any more of this adventure. Behave kindly to the girl, and I will never open my lips concerning the matter to any one. And, Molly, do you be faithful to your friend, and I will not only forgive your infidelity to me, but I will do all the service I can. So saying, he took a hasty leave, and, slipping down the ladder, retired with much expedition. Square was rejoiced to find this adventure was likely to have no worse conclusion, and, as for Molly, being recovered from her confusion, she began at first to upbraid Square with having been the occasion of her loss of Jones, but that gentleman soon found the means of mitigating her anger, partly by caresses, and partly by a small nostrum from his purse, of wonderful and approved efficacy in purging off the ill-humours of the mind, and restoring it to a good temper. She then poured forth a vast profusion of tenderness towards her new lover, turned all she had said to Jones, and Jones himself, into ridicule, and vowed, though he once had the possession of her person, that none but Square had ever been master of her heart. CHAPTER Six. By comparing which with the former, the reader may possibly correct some abuse which he hath formerly been guilty of in the application of the word love. The infidelity of Molly, which Jones had now discovered, would, perhaps, have vindicated a much greater degree of resentment than he expressed on the occasion, and, if he had abandoned her directly from that moment, very few, I believe, would have blamed him. Certainly, however, it is that he saw her in the light of compassion, and though his love to her was not of that kind which could give him 
any great uneasiness at her inconstancy, yet was he not a little shocked, on reflecting that he had himself originally corrupted her innocence, for to this corruption he imputed all the vice into which she appeared now so likely to plunge herself. This consideration gave him no little uneasiness, till Betty, the elder sister, was so kind, some time afterwards, entirely to cure him by a hint that one Will Barnes, and not himself, had been the first seducer of Molly, and that the little child which he had hitherto so certainly concluded to be his own, might very probably have an equal title, at least, to claim Barnes for its father. Jones eagerly pursued this scent when he had first received it, and in a very short time was sufficiently assured that the girl had told him truth, not only by the confession of the fellow, but at last by that of Molly herself. This Will Barnes was a country gallant, and had acquired as many trophies of this kind as any ensign or attorney's clerk in the kingdom. He had indeed reduced several women to a state of utter profligacy, had broken the hearts of some, and had the honour of occasioning the violent death of one poor girl, who had either drowned herself, or, what was rather more probable, had been drowned by him. Among other of his conquests, this fellow had triumphed over the heart of Betty Seagram. He had made love to her long before Molly was grown, to be a fit object of that pastime, but had afterwards deserted her, and applied to her sister, with whom he had had almost immediate success. Now Will had, in reality, the sole possession of Molly's affection, while Jones and Square were almost equally sacrifices to her interest and to her pride. Hence had grown that implacable hatred which we have seen before raging in the mind of Betty, though we did not think it necessary to assign this cause sooner, as envy itself alone was adequate to all the effects we have mentioned. Jones was become perfectly easy by possession of this secret with regard to Molly. But as to Sophia, he was far from being in a state of tranquillity. Nay, indeed, he was under the most violent perturbation. His heart was now, if I may use the metaphor, entirely evacuated, and Sophia took absolute possession of it. He loved her with an unbounded passion, and plainly saw the tender sentiments she had for him. Yet could not this assurance lessen his despair of obtaining the consent of her father, nor the horrors which attended his pursuit of her 
by any base or treacherous method. The injury which he must thus do to Mr. Western, and the concern which would accrue to Mr. Allworthy, were circumstances that tormented him all day, and haunted him on his pillow at night. His life was a constant struggle between honour and inclination, which alternately triumphed over each other in his mind. He often resolved, in the absence of Sophia, to leave her father's house, and to see her no more, and, as often, in her presence, forgot all those resolutions, and determined to pursue her at the hazard of his life, and at the forfeiture of what was much dearer to him. This conflict began soon to produce very strong and visible effects, for he lost all his usual sprightliness and gaiety of temper, and became not only melancholy when alone, but dejected and absent in company. Nay, if ever he put on a forced mirth to comply with Mr. Western's humour, the constraint appeared so plain that he seemed to have been giving the strongest evidence of what he endeavoured to conceal by such ostentation. It may perhaps be a question whether the art which he used to conceal his passion or the means which honest nature employed to reveal it betrayed him most. For while art made him more than ever reserved to Sophia, and forbade him to address any of his discourse to her, nay, to avoid meeting her eyes with the utmost caution, nature was no less busy in counterplotting him. Hence, at the approach of the young lady, he grew pale, and if this was sudden, started. If his eyes accidentally met hers, the blood rushed into his cheeks, and his countenance became all over scarlet. If common civility ever obliged him to speak to her, as to drink her health at table, his tongue was sure to falter. If he touched her, his hand, nay his whole frame, trembled, and if any discourse tended, however remotely, to raise the idea of love, and involuntary sighs seldom failed to steal from his bosom, most of which accidents nature was wonderfully industrious to throw daily in his way. All these symptoms escaped the notice of the squire, but not so of Sophia. She soon perceived these agitations of mind in Jones, and was at no loss to discover the cause. For indeed, she recognized it in her own breast, and this recognition is, I suppose, that sympathy which hath 
been so often noted in lovers, and which will sufficiently account for her being so much quicker-sighted than her father. But, to say the truth, there is a more simple and plain method of accounting for that prodigious superiority of penetration which we must observe in some men over the rest of the human species, and one which will serve not only in the case of lovers, but of all others. From whence is it that the knave is generally so quick-sighted to those symptoms and operations of knavery, which often dupe an honest man of a much better understanding. There surely is no general sympathy among knaves, nor have they, like Freemasons, any common sign of communication. In reality it is only because they have the same thing in their heads, and their thoughts are turned the same way. Thus, that Sophia saw, and that Western did not see, the plain symptoms of love in Jones can be no wonder, when we consider that the idea of love never entered into the head of the father, whereas the daughter, at present, thought of nothing else. When Sophia was well satisfied of the violent passion which tormented poor Jones, and no less certain that she herself was its object, she had not the least difficulty in discovering the true cause of his present behavior. This highly endeared him to her, and raised in her mind two of the best affections which any lover can wish to raise in a mistress. These were esteem and pity, for sure the most outrageously rigid among her sex will excuse her pitying a man whom she saw miserable on her own account, nor can they blame her for esteeming one who visibly, from the most honourable motives, endeavoured to smother a flame in his own bosom, which, like the famous Spartan theft, was preying upon and consuming his very vitals. Thus his backwardness, his shunning her, his coldness, and his silence were the forwardest, the most diligent, the warmest, and most eloquent advocates, and wrought so violently on her sensible and tender heart, that she soon felt for him all those gentle sensations which are consistent with a virtuous and elevated female mind. In short, all which esteem, gratitude, and pity can inspire in such towards an agreeable man, indeed, all which the nicest delicacy can allow. In a word, she was in love with him to distraction. 
One day this young couple accidentally met in the garden, at the end of the two walks which were both bounded by that canal in which Jones had formerly risked drowning to retrieve the little bird that Sophia had there lost. This place had been of late much frequented by Sophia. Here she used to ruminate with a mixture of pain and pleasure on an incident which, however trifling in itself, had possibly sown the first seeds of that affection which was now arrived to such maturity in her heart. Here, then, this young couple met. They were almost close together, before either of them knew anything of the other's approach. A bystander would have discovered sufficient marks of confusion in the countenance of each, but they felt too much themselves to make any observation. As soon as Jones had a little recovered his first surprise, he accosted the young lady with some of the ordinary forms of salutation, which she in the same manner returned, and their conversation began, as usual, on the delicious beauty of the morning. Hence they passed to the beauty of the place on which Jones launched forth very high encomiums. When they came to the tree whence he had formerly tumbled into the canal, Sophia could not help reminding him of that accident, and said, I fancy, Mr. Jones, you have some little shuddering when you see that water. I assure you, madam, answered Jones, the concern you felt at the loss of your little bird will always appear to me the highest circumstance in that adventure. Poor little Tommy! There is the branch he stood upon. How could the little wretch have the folly to fly away from that state of happiness in which I had the honour to place him? His fate was a just punishment for his ingratitude. Upon my word, Mr. Jones, said she, your gallantry very narrowly escaped as severe a fate. Sure the remembrance must affect you. Indeed, madam, answered he, if I had any reason to reflect with sorrow on it, it is, perhaps, that the water had not been a little deeper, by which I might have escaped many bitter heartaches that fortune seems to have in store for me. Fie, Mr. Jones, replied Sophia, I am sure you cannot be in earnest now. This affected contempt of life is only in excess of your complacence to me. You would endeavour to lessen the obligation of having twice ventured it for my sake. Beware the third time. She spoke these last words with a smile and a softness inexpressible.
Jones answered with a sigh. He feared it was already too late for caution. And then, looking tenderly and steadfastly on her, he cried, Oh, Miss Western, can you desire me to live? Can you wish me so ill? Sophia, looking down on the ground, answered with some hesitation, Indeed, Mr. Jones, I do not wish you ill. Oh, I know too well that heavenly temper, cries Jones, that divine goodness which is beyond every other charm. Nay, now, answered she, I understand you not. I can stay no longer. I, I would not be understood, cries he. Nay, I can't be understood. I don't know what to say. Meeting you here so unexpectedly, I have been unguarded. For heaven's sake, pardon me, if I have said anything to offend you. I did not mean it. Indeed, I would rather have died. Nay, nay, the very thought would kill me. You surprise me, answered she. How can you possibly think you have offended me? Fear, madam, says he, easily runs into madness. And there is no degree of fear like that which I feel of offending you. How can I speak, then? Nay, don't look angrily at me. One frown will destroy me. I mean nothing. Blame my eyes, or, or blame those beauties. What am I saying? Pardon me if I have said too much. My heart overflowed. I... I have struggled with my love to the utmost, and have endeavoured to conceal a fever which preys on, on my vitals, and will, I hope, soon make it impossible for me ever to offend you more. Mr. Jones now fell, a-trembling, as if he had been shaken with the fit of an ague. Sophia, who was in a situation not very much different from his, answered in these words, Mr. Jones, I will not affect to misunderstand you. Indeed, I understand you too well. But, for heaven's sake, if you have any affection for me, let me make the best of my way into the house. I wish I may be able to support myself thither. Jones, who was hardly able to support himself, offered her his arm, which she condescended to accept, but begged he would not mention a word more to her of this nature at present. He promised he would not, insisting only on her forgiveness of what love, without the leave of his will, had forced from him. This, she told him, he knew how to obtain by his future behavior. And thus this young pair tottered and trembled along, the lover not once daring to squeeze the hand of his mistress, though it was locked in his. 
Sophia immediately returned to her chamber, where Mrs. Honour and the Hartshorn were summoned to her assistance. As to poor Jones, the only relief to his distempered mind was an unwelcome piece of news, which, as it opens a scene of different nature from those in which the reader hath lately been conversant, will be communicated to him in the next chapter. End of section 16 Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California for LibriVox Spring 2008